I invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7 uh, this morning. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, we're going to get right into the text of Scripture. The sermon will be just a little shorter uh, than normal, but we are going to cover a good amount of text of Scripture. We're going to be looking at Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 19. Well, the book of Hebrews is a very orderly book. It is organized into five major sections. Uh, each section contains doctrine, which is followed by a warning. So we come to Hebrews chapter 7. We start into the fourth section at the very heart of the book of Hebrews. This is the longest section in the entire book. It spans over four chapters. In the previous section, just before this, uh, the author warns his readers not to miss out on a comparison that he wants to make between Jesus and Melchizedek. And so in our doctrinal section that starts in Hebrews 7.1 and goes to Hebrews 10.18, he unpacks this comparison for us between Melchizedek and Jesus. Now I think one can follow the main themes of these chapters in the doctrinal section by noticing some vocabulary, some words that are repeated often. Uh, as I noticed in my own study of Scripture, if you were to go through Hebrews chapter 7, the key word I think you would see repeated over and over again is the word priest. As you then turn to Hebrews 8, especially near the middle to end of that chapter, you would see the language turn just a little bit so that the emphasis there is on the word covenant. And if you continue reading in Hebrews 9, verse 1, it changes one more time to an emphasis that the author puts upon sacrificial language. Words like sacrifice, offering, blood, and death. So if you want to pay, if you, if you want to hold these chapters together in your mind in this doctrinal section, you might do this. Over Hebrews chapter 7, in the margin of your Bible, you could write the word priest. Over Hebrews 8, you could write the word covenant. And over Hebrews 9, you could write the word sacrifice. If you're into acrostics, it would be PCS. I don't know what that would stand for. Personal computers or something. It, uh, priesthood, covenant, sacrifice. You can see I'm terrible at acrostics. Before we get too far into our discussion today, though, I must admit that in Hebrews 7, we come to a difficult text. Melchizedek is a very mysterious person. Sometimes, though, I think difficult texts are really good for us. It's good for us. They teach us that Bible study requires diligence and hard work. I think it also teaches us uh, not to come to the text of Scripture in a self-centered manner. That is, we're not to come looking for a quick blessing for myself or something to help me through my day. Let me illustrate the way I think we're often selfish with the word in a real-life illustration. When my children were younger, they loved to go to their grandparents' home, Mama and Pop's. It's interesting to me to hear them talk about it the few days, a few days before they would be arriving at their house. One unnamed child would be especially interesting for you to hear when they were younger. Okay, so I'm not going to tell you who it is. I've made promises to my kids. 
he or she loved to go to mom or pops as a small child because he or she knew that they would all get all kinds of cool stuff. Gifts. Pops especially was really good at promising him or her some significant gifts. So, even if I mentioned their name, Mama, or especially Pops, you could see in his or her eye, greedy little eyes, you see they just begin to twinkle with greed. Now, for the most part, my children eventually learned to desire to go to Pennsylvania for Mama and Pops, not for the gifts or the things that they give to them. Now, the difference between these two things is the difference between maturity and immaturity. And so men and women, we should love to go to the Word of God, not for ourselves, but for what it tells us about our transcendent God, for what we can learn about our faithful and merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do here today. As Hebrews 5 informed us, we should have our powers of discernment trained to distinguish the word of righteousness. Again, this passage is difficult for you. I think this passage is difficult for preachers to preach as well. Its content does not fit what most preachers like to do in their sermons today. I mean, they, I think many preachers, they, they like to be able to preach through a text that you know, is easy to understand, you know, something, uh, th this text will not fit well into normal practice. You know, three points and a poem don't go well with Melchizedek. Or they don't cohere well with, you know, some heartwarming illustration about a small puppy dog or, you know, something like that. It's, it's hard to mix those with Melchizedek. So instead, we're going to dig in here today and we're going to learn what God wants us to know. So we're going to look at this section about priests starting in chapter 1. And it has a twofold division. First, we learn that Melchizedek was superior to the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant. That's verses 1 through 10. And then we'll see that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priests as well. That's Hebrews 7, 11 through 8, 6. We won't have time to look at all of this, but let's start into the section about Melchizedek. First, we look at him, and I want to answer two questions about him in this passage the first question is, who was Melchizedek? Look in your Bible at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So in the first few verses, the author gives us a brief summary of a text that goes back to the Old Testament. Melchizedek is mentioned in four verses in the book of Genesis. Genesis 14, verses 17 through 20. Other than those four verses, Melchizedek is only found in one other verse in your entire Old Testament scripture, and that is Psalm 110 and verse 4. So there are five verses that talk about this mysterious person, Melchizedek. Now, what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to draw from that and summarize what to him were the important takeaways. 
And he tells us, I think, four things about Melchizedek and who he was in verses 1 through 3. First, he tells us he was the king of Salem. The king of Salem, an ancient city, probably became Jerusalem later. See, Salem, Jerusalem. Probably becomes Jerusalem later once it's established, or perhaps just outside of what become Jerusalem. So this Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Now, the word Salem, he tells us, means peace. So he's the king of peace. He adds to that in verses 2 and 3 that he's also the king of righteousness. And what he's doing here is he's just simply translating for us what the Hebrew word for Melchizedek meant. It means king of peace. Okay? So this man was both a king of peace and a king of righteousness. And in this way, I think Melchizedek is a a foreshadowing of God himself, resembling God himself. Uh, For I was reading this week and I found in Psalm 85 in verse 10, it says that it was in the Lord that righteousness and peace kiss each other. These two qualities, peace and righteousness, are found most uh, most perfectly in the Lord, Yahweh. But here's a king who is a king of peace and king of righteousness. Uh, He then adds to that a second description of him. He's a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God. Now, if you were to go back to your Old Testament scripture and you were to look in the Torah, you would see that to be a priest after Moses meant that you would have to descend from the tribe of Levi. In particular, you could look in Numbers uh, chapter 18, verse 7, you could see that. To be a priest under the law meant that you had to be a Levitical priest. But before the establishment of Levi and his priesthood, the scriptures speak about one other priest. As a matter of fact, the very first time the word priest is used in your Bible is Genesis 14 when uh, Moses is talking about Melchizedek. And what we learn about Melchizedek is that he is a priest, and he's not just a normal priest. He is a priest of the Most High God. That is, he is a genuine priest of the genuine God. He's not an evil priest following after some false god. He is a priest of the Most High God. So Melchizedek is a king and a priest, but there's more to learn. Next, we see that he was a contemporary of Abraham. I see that at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. This is where the author specifically alludes to the Genesis story about Abraham and Melchizedek. And although this is a mysterious encounter, the author of Hebrews thinks it's very significant for us. And so let me just review those four verses in Genesis and what we learn there about this encounter. Four wicked Canaanite kings had seized the city of Sodom. And when you hear Sodom, you might think Sodom and Gomorrah, and those are the right cities to be thinking about. So you might think, well, maybe that was a good thing. However, it was bad for Abraham before Sodom was destroyed because that's where his nephew Lot was. And so Abraham takes with him 318 trained men and thoroughly defeats this federacy of forces, these four kings. And in Hebrews 7, verse 1, it's called the slaughter of the kings. 
See that in your Bible? The slaughter of the kings. So Abraham takes 318 of his own servants, and they go, and they take out these four kings. And as Abraham was leaving the city, without warning, a man appears on the scene. His name is Melchizedek, and he comes to him at a place called the King's Valley. Melchizedek observes what's happened, and he recognizes that it was God who gave Abraham the amazing victory. So Melchizedek issues a blessing to Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, and Abraham responds by giving him 10% of all of the spoil that he had just received from those Canaanite kings. He gives him a tithe off of it because Abraham recognizes that Melchizedek is a genuine priest of God. Of all of those events I just narrate for you in Genesis, the author of Hebrews reminds us only that Abraham and Melchizedek are, they are uh, contemporaries and he emphasizes that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Now he does emphasize one last quality about Melchizedek in verse 3. So look down again in verse 3. He says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Here what the author of Hebrews does is very interesting. He argues from silence. Remember just four verses in Genesis 1 and Psalms. Melchizedek appears on the scene in Genesis without any warning. We don't know where he comes from or where he goes. So the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek in this text is without father or mother. Okay? Now this at least means that his parents are not recorded or given to us in Scripture. He's without father or mother. There, there's a similar text in the book of Esther. Esther 2 and verse 7, where Esther is said to have no father or mother, similar language, there uh, it's because her father and mother had died. So she had a father and mother at one time, but no longer. So this at least means we don't know if he had a father and mother where he came from. It might mean more than that. The author of Hebrews also says that he had no beginning of days nor end of life. So some scholars think here that Melchizedek was a Christophany, that this was an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, that Jesus became flesh. Although, to be truthful, you don't have to, you don't, it's not absolutely necessary to say it was Jesus. The author of Hebrews might be stating that we have, since we have, that we have no record of his birth or death, just like we have no recorded genealogy of him. And so without record of his beginning or death, he resembles Jesus, and thus also there's no record of the end of his priesthood. For while we know, he just continues on and on and on. So that is who Melchizedek is. If I'm summarizing, he's a king priest. He's a contemporary of Abraham. And he is one who comes from unknown origins and who has an unknown fate. But why is he important? Look in your Bible at verses 4 through 10. And I want to try to answer that. Why, why Melchizedek? Look at verse 4. See how great this man to whom Abraham the, the, the patriarch gave a tenth of those spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute, this is key because we're going to have to survey this, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham because he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Again, we can't do everything here, but I think his argument is pretty simple, actually, at this point. It's twofold. And so, uh, first, I think he, kind of in a proverbial way, as I highlighted there in verse 7, he makes it clear that the inferior is the one who would be the one paying tithes to someone superior. In this text, again, Abraham, inferior, pays tithes to Melchizedek, that is the superior. Okay, so it's indisputable that the one who's of superior rank is the one receiving the tithes. Now, he takes it a step farther in verses 9 and 10. I'm not going to get into this too much. When he says, one might even say that uh, Levi also paid tithes to Melchizedek. Okay, but this, of course, presents a problem for us because how could Levi pay tithes to someone before, Le- you know, years before Levi was ever even born? Okay, so how is that even possible? Uh, some people think that it, the idea here is a, a seminal one that contained within Abraham's body was the seed of all of his future descendants. And so in that way, Levi is represented when Abraham gives tithes, because Abraham, from Abraham later will come Levi and his descendants. Others think, no, it's, it's a federal idea, and that Abraham's just representing all those people who would come from him, and so Abraham's the inferior, and from him all of his descendants would come later, and they're all then inferior to the superior one, Melchizedek, who is a priest. Regardless, I mean, either way, I think this implies that Melchizedek was superior to Levi. Levi was counted as being in Abraham's body when this happened. Okay? That leads me to the second point of the way this works, and that is that the superior one is the one who blesses the inferior. And so as you look throughout this text, you can see that very clearly. Uh, Melchizedek blesses the one in verse 6 who had the promises. Melchizedek is blessing Abraham who just received the Abrahamic covenant and promises. So uh, Melchizedek gives a blessing which indicates, you know, this is an action by a superior, one of superior position to one who's inferior. So verses 1 through 10 are here to make one important point, I think, and that is that Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood, the priest that would come from Levi. But what I would like to do for the rest of our time is I'd like to look at verses 11 through 19. And I think this will be an excellent preparation for the Lord's table today. As we come to this section, we find out that, that you know, the, the author of Hebrews is not just concerned to talk about Melchizedek. He really wants to talk about Jesus. And so uh, from Hebrews 7, 11 through 8, 6, he talks about uh, Jesus. And he starts by looking at some of the weaknesses in the old priests of Levi. He, he goes a little farther into that. He digs a little deeper. 
And he, what he really does is he gives us three reasons why, in verses 11 through 19, why Jesus replaces the Levitical priests. And so I'm just going to give them to you briefly, and I think these will be excellent meditation for us as we go to the table. The first reason he gives here is that the old priests are replaced by Jesus is because the old priests couldn't bring things to completion or to an end. Look in your Bible, verses 11 through 14. Now if perfection, could be translated completion or the end. Now if completion had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise, I love that word, to arise, perhaps an allusion to the resurrection, after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He's connecting Jesus to Melchizedek there. Now, if you look at verse 12, you'll find, I think, one of the keys to understanding this whole text. In verse 12, you've got like two halves, and, and you have this word that's translated change twice. Now, I would prefer to take this the way it's normally translated in Hebrews, and I, I would add, I would use the word remove. Okay, so it could be translated this way, verse 12. When the priesthood is removed, there must also be a removal of the law. So the author is speaking here of the need to remove both the old priest and the law system. Now, perhaps even more important here is the word perfection that begins to occur in verse 11. And later on throughout, it's used three times through the rest of this. The word perfection becomes something that the author is consumed to talk about when he's going to talk about priests. Now, the word perfection, as I said before, normally communicates in Hebrew the idea of completion or an end, okay? So what he's arguing here in this paragraph, or in this section, he's arguing that the Levitical system could not bring people to a place of completion. Not only could the old system not do that, the old priests some of which were contemporary to these original readers. Those Levitical priests who were still in existence during their day, they couldn't get the job done because of the insufficiency of their sacrifice. These animal sacrifices were just a shadow. And so what I think the author of Hebrews is doing is he's telling us here, you know, here are some reasons why they had to be replaced. And number one is they couldn't get the job done. They couldn't bring you to completion. A few years ago, I had the unenviable task of roofing my house. Since I had no idea what I was doing up there, I asked one of my friends to oversee the project he had experienced. Perhaps you have worked with projects like this before. For me, these projects always seem to take much longer than anyone thinks they should. After about two days on the roof, I was ready to be done, but we had far more work to accomplish. 
Let's imagine in that scenario, after the whole project was finished, my friend came to me and he explained that because of the poor building materials that we used, that we would need to re-roof my house every year. How demoralizing would that be? I can think of things much worse. Or what if when we were nearing the end of the job on day five, my friend took me back to the first shingles that we laid on day one, and he showed me that they were already ruined. And my friend explained to me or told me that, uh, that we would be up on this roof for the rest of our lives laying new shingles every day. Honestly, I could not imagine a more miserable experience. Uh, It was a groundhog day, but worse. (laughs) If he said this to me, I would say, no, I did not hire you so that we would do this job every day. When I hired you, I wanted someone who would finish the job. In the old covenant system of Moses, the old priest had to get up every morning and offer new sacrifices to restore the relationship of the people to God. Completion was not possible under the old covenant, but men and women. You know what's coming, right? You know the gospel. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, finished the job. He brought completion because he restored our fellowship with our creator God so that all of our sin is covered. All of our lies, all of our jealousy, all of our lust and gossip, all of our bitterness, all of our empty self-promotion is under the blood and will never condemn us again. And so we say, hallelujah. He finished the job. Christ brought completion. It is finished. Praise the Lord. Or as the author of Hebrews says later on, for by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. But there's another way he describes these old priests as being in fear. They they not only could not bring us to completion, verses 15 through 17, they weren't always there for you. That's how I'd summarize these verses. Look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. By the time you get to verses 15 and 16, things are ramping up here, and the author is establishing an irresistible conclusion. This conclusion is about Christ and his priesthood. And perhaps it's a a little bit mysterious, but I think what he's doing here is he's, he's giving us a new argument about Christ, and he's saying that Christ is greater, he's a greater priest, because in contrast to the Levitical priests of the Old Covenant era who were replaced every 20 or 30 years, he never needs to be replaced. So he says it this way, he says, Christ's priesthood is forever, and it's on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So what is the difference between Christ and the other priests? The the main difference is 
that Christ died, but death could not hold him. Death could not hold him. Death, who is personified in the Bible as a sinister tyrant, who swallows up every human being, every priest who's lived in this world, could not keep one priest down. Christ continues on indefinitely. So as he's pointing out the weaknesses of these old priests, I think he's saying these old priests won't always be for you won't always be there for you. And I think especially in the 50s and 60s AD when this is going on, these high priests are changing about every year or two. I remember a few years ago when I was transitioning from being the provost of Central Seminary to become a pastor here. One of my responsibilities was to oversee a pastoral program uh, called the Doctor of Ministry. And so this was a modular program. And so we announced that I'd be coming here. And at the next module class, I think every student came to the course. And they all came to the class primarily because they were nervous. They were nervous because they were losing a known representative. They were also nervous about the new guy. They wanted to find out who would be in charge and what he might do to them. Since the Levitical priest could only serve about 20 years, the Israelites were constantly needing to get to know different priests. The old priests weren't always there for you. You could never really count on any one priest. And the same is true of us today and our elected officials. Right? We live in a world where nothing lasts. It all wears out and fades away. No leader or elected representative or official survives more than a generation or two. Some can't even hold things down for more than one state caucus. Think about it. Even if our elected, current elected president is confirmed again, it will only be for four more years then we all start over in a new era. There is, however, one glorious exception to this. There is one representative who always lives to make intercession for us, our great high priest Jesus. So we're reading these these reasons why the old priest had to be removed. They couldn't get us to completion. They wouldn't always be there for you. And then third and finally, verses 18 and 19, the way I'd summarize it is, and they couldn't get you to God. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. In verse 18, we learn that the law, there described as a former commandment, is set aside. That's legal language. It's an idiom. It means that it was canceled or abrogated. And the law was canceled because it was no longer of value and because it was not effective. It's interesting to me as I go through Hebrews and I see how the author of Hebrews treats the law of Moses. He's perhaps even more severe in his assessment than Paul the Apostle, which I thought was about impossible. Paul the Apostle says we are not under the law of Moses, and later on he says we're dead to it. But here the author of Hebrews says the law was weak and useless because it did not make anything perfect. It didn't make anything complete or perfect. It was not able to forgive sins. 
And later, I think he, he tells us a little bit more of what he means by this perfection. It, he, the law was not able to get us to God. But what we learn in verse 19 is a better hope could. This better hope is Jesus, the one who gives us access to God, the one that enables us to draw near to God. As we close, I want you to think about this for a moment. How would an old covenant priest respond to a sincere worshiper who asked him to be, go, be able to go into the Holy of Holies to be with God? What would an old covenant priest say to the person who says, I want to draw near to God. I want to go in there so that I can experience God. I want to get to know him. I want to be able to offer worship to him. What would an old covenant priest say? I think the old covenant priest would say this. He would say, there is no way that you can get in there. There's no way. The old covenant system was calculated to keep men and women at a distance from God for their own physical being, well-being and safety. The old priests could not get you to God. They might look good in their ornamental priestly garb, they might impress you with their tradition and ritual, but the author says, do not be deceived. They won't be there for you. They can't finish the job, and they won't get you to God. But again, men and women, there is one who can. Jesus finished the job so that we can draw near to God. And Jesus lives today in heaven in order to make holy of holy worshipers who have the privilege and the joy to draw near to him in humble adoration.